If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. Listeners, today we have got Jack Fuller coming on to talk to us about using creativity to spark new ideas for our nonprofits. And the other thing I have to share with you, and you know, I say this about one out of every five or six episodes. This is the last recording episode of the day. It is always the best one. And the reason is what you get is real and raw. It is the end of the day for me. For our guest, I think, and it's about 6.15 on the East Coast. I think our guest is on Central Time, so it's about 5.15. But it's after the workday for both of us. So you are going to get a real, raw, amazing, authentic conversation with Jack Fuller and myself. Before I introduce Jack, I just need to remind you that the deadline to register for our book club is just days away. It is coming up on May 1st. And you know, listeners, that I love to read. And I have selected 10 transformational books that our book club will read and discuss over the next year. These are the books that I have gifted the most over the last year. And I will share with you, every one of these books has made me a better leader, a better manager, and in many cases, frankly, a better human being. And one of the things that makes our book club so unique is that authors are often going to be joining us to discuss their books. We're going to be talking about 10 books over a 12-month period, and we already have five amazing authors who have agreed to join us. I'll share with you Jack Fuller, who is today's guest and co-author of this great book, The Imagination Machine, is also going to be joining us, I think, in the July session. So this is a unique opportunity to read 10 great books and get to discuss at least half of the books with their authors. And now, listeners, let me tell you about Jack Fuller. I have to admit that as I did research on Jack, he has lived my dream life. When I say that, here's what I'm talking about. He's resided on three continents. He has a very unique set of college degrees. Based on what his degrees are, you would never guess that he has done the things that he has done. 
He's been a consultant at the Boston Consulting Group, a faculty at School of Life. And if you don't know about School of Life, super cool. You should really check it out. A co-author of the book that we're going to talk about today, The Imagination Machine, which was published by HBR. And he is now the founder and CEO of Archive Health. And it's kind of interesting. I almost have this sense, and I don't know this for a fact, that there's some imagination that kind of came about for Jack to actually found Archive Health because they help businesses improve the health and productivity of their workforces by providing primary on-site care, nutrition, therapy, that kind of thing to employees. It's really kind of an amazing way to integrate wellness and health into an employer's actual facility and office. So I have to say, as you think about all of those things, that pretty much is the definition of a thought leader. So I'm so excited that we have Jack Fuller on today to talk with us about his book, The Imagination Machine. And I'll just share with you, if I had to summarize the book in a sentence, and of course, Jack and I are going to talk about it for probably 25 or 30 minutes, but if I had to summarize the book in a sentence, this book helps you conceive of something that is not real, but is possible. And it helps you make the possible happen. Jack, thank you for joining me to discuss this amazing, game-changing book. Hi, Dolph. Thanks very much. I appreciate the introduction. Unfortunately, I left my copy of the book on my desk across the hall because I typically like to show guests, like, it is dog-eared, it is tabbed, it is underlined, like, this was an amazing book. And, and I'm also, by the way, I, probably like like you, when you were at Boston Consulting Group, I'm on a lot of airplanes. And so airplanes are often my reading time. And so I'm one of those people who's like turning the light on above me and then just furiously taking notes and scribbling while I'm reading. And I did that a lot with your book. And so having read your book, I kind of have a sense of this, but I'd love to hear from you. Why is imagination important for nonprofits? Yeah, so... Think about how things begin, how anything begins, including a, a great nonprofit. You start with an idea. Everything in the world began with some kind of concept in someone's mind before they acted. And that's a great stage to be at. You know, a lot of us love that stage. We're imaginative people. We love thinking of possibilities and ideas and how the world could be different. And that stage is often very fun as well as hard work. And the company, you know, or the organization is growing. There's opportunities, possibilities. What happens though with every kind of organization, nonprofits included, I think, is that they become ossified. So the structures that you build end up becoming more like a prison. And uh, you know, then you get trapped and, and imagination dies. And that's the general narrative. So what we're trying to do with this book is say, for one, we value those structures. We understand efficiency, operational excellence. And that's all very important. But how can you keep imagination alive within the structure? That's the real challenge to value both those things. And that's important because companies and nonprofits constantly need to adapt and change. I'll share with you, and I never really thought about it quite from this perspective, but reading your book, I would often think, yeah, throughout throughout the history of humanity, there have been these things that we once thought were impossible, but actually turned out were possible. We just were not at a stage where we could make it happen. And this is true whether we're talking about electricity or even, you know, gosh, floating across an ocean or, you know, air travel. All of these things once upon a time were just not real at all. And most people thought they were impossible. But someone could envision it and then someone could actually 
use that imagination to figure out how to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And in the book, we talk a lot about uh, banks, which I find interesting because they seem such a part of the furniture now. But really, at one point, they didn't exist. And we tend to think of them as as real as a, a tree or a rock and as permanent, but really, they're much less permanent. Because they were invented, they can obviously be reimagined. And that's a liberating thought, that a bank is fundamentally an idea. It's an idea that people are living out um, many, many different people, you know, but that can be changed. And it's also interesting because I, you talk about one financial investment firm in the book where you're like, okay, this founder changed the game because he ran grocery stores and he said, hey, why can't financial investment firms be more for the everyday person the same way grocery stores are, where you could just walk in and talk to someone and get what you need? Yeah, absolutely. That was actually the, uh, the bank Merrill Lynch. So, you know, he, he has a fascinating story and he started this small bank in the, in the depression and um, rough before the depression, actually. And then he went away and he was the director of Safeway, which was actually a big deal at the time because supermarkets were a brand new thing. And the idea of having this place that had middle-class prices and transparent communication, advertising, he, he then came back to the bank when it was hit by the depression and had this opportunity to reform it. And it was radical at the time because banking was very much an ivory tower for the few and he thought, what if we bring those principles of the supermarket into the bank, as you said, advertising, communicating to the middle classes, transparent pricing, trying to get people involved in investing. And uh, it was very successful. And that's what led to Merrill Lynch becoming a completely revolutionary bank, really, and changing the whole of Wall Street. Right. Well, one of the things that, w- that helped me really change as I was thinking about this, helped me change how I thought about it, was when you started to talk about these mental models, because like now, you know, we have, we have a mental model in our head for what a bank is. You know, we walk in and we're like, oh, you know, we can see tellers, you know, we can see some kind of kiosk where people can fill out little sheets of paper. We're like, okay, this is a bank, but it's, but once upon a time, no one had that mental model. Yeah, absolutely. Mental model is really another word for idea. We can say an idea of a bank or a concept of a bank, but what the the term mental model does is emphasizes that it's a bit like a model built out of Lego. There's lots of different parts to it. It includes, uh, you know, as you said, processes, emotions, habits, and some kind of vision of what we're doing as a whole. And all of that has been put together. And it's something that we follow usually instinctually by the time it becomes reality. But those pieces can be taken apart again. And we can say, well, let's take this piece of a supermarket and apply it over to this mental model at a bank. Or let's take this piece of a gym and apply it to a hospital. And that can often be the, the starting point for developing an imaginative, counterfactual, new mental model. Yeah, and, I, and I'll share with you, I, I, love, I really love that. And there was one generative question that you had in your book that I, around mining those mental models, and it was, what parallels can we draw with anything else in the world or through history? Yeah, yeah, I love that question. That particular question actually came from just observing people that I admire and how they think. And you know, um, philosophers that I've known who, who are practical philosophers, they've been very good at just drawing really fascinating parallels from random times in history that people really don't know much about, like the Middle Ages or early modern period in Europe or all sorts of other places. And that can actually be very illuminating because it, it's a time when mental models are very different. And personally, I ended up studying theology, which is a whole story in itself because I was an atheist, but Part of the motivation for that was to dive into this time period that was just so different when people had completely different mental models of the world and their place in it. 
And I think that could be a really fascinating counterpoint to have to the modern period. And part of the point we make in the book is the more you can have these really diverse models in your mind, the more you can take different standpoints and also draw on different pieces of models from different times to integrate them into something new. Yeah. So thinking about other mental models, whether they're down the street or some other point in history, is one way to really spark imagination. What are some other ways that we can trigger our imagination so we can think more creatively and change our organizations? Yeah, one great way is just thinking about the concept of surprise, which is actually a technical informational term. It really means some piece of information that makes a difference to the system that it enters. So, you know, everything is familiar to you in your room. When you look at it, nothing is particularly surprising because it's confirming your existing model. Then when something's different, that's a surprise. And that is the beginning of imagination because that jolts things and sets you down the path we say in the book, seduces you down and takes you away from the current way of thinking into something different. So in a company or in a nonprofit, one helpful thing is to think, are there enough sources of surprise in our day? Interesting sources that might jolt us out of ways of thinking. Companies, especially at the middle level, actually the executive level, we do get a lot of surprise, but especially the middle level, we create these systems that are very repetitive and familiar. And that can stop us imagining. So a great way to do it is just get out of the house, as it were, you know, go out and, and encounter the world. And I'll give you a quick example of this. So Hindustan Unilever, which is um, you know, one of the biggest commercial goods producers in India, when the CEO took over in around 2008, the company was flatlining uh, and he decided to send every single person in this gigantic company in India all out to the field for one day. So literally everyone, the executives went, the, the, the secretaries, the, you know, every person had to go to the places where their products were sold, which were mostly small villages in rural areas, and just, just hang out there, just talk to people, see what was actually happening. And then they had a list of questions to ask. And um, part of it was, what was surprising that I saw? And so, you know, uh, people came back and with tons of new ideas for how to change the company, how they could do things differently, new connections they spotted, different ways of um, helping people, you know, being more efficient, helping their providers, uh, the people who retail for them. All sorts of ideas came from that. So doing something similar with your organization can be a great starting point. The other thing I seem to recall you talked about, and this either might have been part of surprise or right beside surprise, is looking to see what causes pain for you. Mm, yeah, yeah. It's um, somewhat obvious when we think about it, but a lot of inventions come from frustrations. And what we say is treat your frustrations as potentially valuable. And usually not in the moment, usually you're just feeling frustrated at something. But if you pack those away and think about them and reflect on them, that can often be a starting point to think, well, how could things be different? Mm -hmm. I think you talk about the story of the founding of Toro, I think. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's a great that's a great story. So we spoke with the founder of Toro, which is, well, I'll tell you what it is at the end um, if you don't know already. But the story was... He was uh, working for startups. He had been thinking a lot about peer-to-peer -peer marketplaces as a concept. And then one day he was driving home, uh, sorry, cycling, in order to get to a, a uh, hired car that he had booked. And he was cycling through these streets in a snowstorm, very cold. And he was looking at all these cars parked on the side of the road as he was going there thinking, isn't it strange that I'm driving past all these cars, cycling past them to get to a car? Why can't I just get in one of those cars? And then he, asked, he said, well, why can't I? And that gave him the idea, well, there are all these unused assets just sitting parked on the side of the road. Can't we use them? Wouldn't people like to rent out their cars? So he basically created 
Airbnb for private car rentals. He did it in a fascinating way, but the very beginning was interesting because he allowed himself to be surprised in a way. Most people would see that. They might even think, oh, why can't I get in that car? But then he kind of took it seriously and, and said, well, why can't I? And then started thinking. So, yeah, it's a great story. And I just have the sense that, like, those of us in the nonprofit sector, if we could harness some of that creativity and really, you know, when when we think about, okay, you know, what causes pain for the constituents we serve or, you know, gee, what, where are our surprises? What could we do differently? How could we change our systems and our models so that we can better serve our constituents? Mm, yeah, definitely. You know, um, the next part of the story is relevant to that, which is that he just decided to print out a few postcards and stand on the street and say, hey, do you want to rent out your car? He pretended that he had an existing company and he pretended he had a website. None of it was built yet. But those conversations were really helpful and triggered his imagination to, to think for more. So just getting out and talking to people, bumping into the world is very helpful. And I love that. And I'll share with you, Jack, you know, so often we talk about the minimally viable product and listeners, I, I want to clarify jargon. Essentially, that means, you know, we we create um, the the smallest amount of the product just to try to get a sense of what the demand is going to be and that kind of thing. And this is true, for example, even if, for example, let's say you want to start a soup kitchen, you know, you know, you might say, okay, well, let's make some sandwiches and take them over to this corner and see if there's people that are going to come for food at this corner or not before you decide to build a whole building and do all of that. What I love about that scenario is that's a fake minimally viable product. You know what I mean? Like it's not even real. It's just, okay, let me see, let me see what the supply is going to be. Should I actually decide to do this? It's a great point because actually, the minimally viable products are very useful, but before that is the part we are focusing on especially, which is you don't even know what the product quite is yet, so you can't even get something viable. It's it's like the pre-minimally, the unviable product, <laughs> and getting out there at that stage when your imagination is still forming it at the very early stages can be really valuable. See, and, and that's what I really loved about about what he did is, you know, that that to me, like, it's very imaginative to say, okay, I'm not even in a point where I'm ready to create an MVP. So, uh, so I'm going to create a fake minimally viable product and just see how many people register. Because, you know, it's not that hard to set up a website. Yeah, exactly. And he wasn't only testing it, though, which is the key thing. You know, the, the registering number is very useful, but it was those conversations with just random people on the street that made him think, oh, yeah, you know, he... Um, one mother said, no one's going to drive my four-wheel drive. And uh, I can't remember what else, but but lots of things there like triggered his, his imagination. So thinking about it from the perspective of how can we trigger our own minds rather than just test something is good at these early stages, yeah. And then I, I know you also have some chapters around starting, you know, like once you've got an idea, starting to gain traction around that idea. Yeah, yeah. That's an interesting challenge with an imaginative idea because it's also still forming. If you're a good imaginative thinker, you're constantly open to evolving the idea. That makes it hard, though, to communicate the idea when you're talking about something that's not fully articulated that doesn't yet exist. How do you inspire people around that? And in some ways, the answer is, is familiar, but it's part of it is being able to tell really good stories and use analogies. I think that's absolutely true, but it's something that we don't focus on in business. And part of what we say with the book is, let's say business and, and nonprofits and org organizations want to get really serious about harnessing imagination. These are the kinds of things they would focus on at an executive level, not just in a side gig type of way. Like how can we really train people to be excellent at telling stories so they can communicate really effectively using metaphors that are really vivid, drawing analogies from different periods of time. Now, all of that's really important to then bring people into the idea while it's still forming. Most organizations 
only kind of let you share something when it's already been formed and tested and proven and defended. But how can we get to that stage when you can just share ideas that are still in progress? Right, right. And so how how do nonprofits create that space for people to be creative and then to take some steps in actually figuring that out? There are lots of elements to it. So I think if I was to prioritize one, it would be treating ideas with generosity and people with generosity in the sense that the early stage ideas are often unformed and may take a completely different shape by the time they've been worked on. There's a great quote we put in the book, which is the best ideas are the ones that have had the longest chance to evolve. And so where something starts is not an indicator of its value. It's, it's more a starting point. And to be generous to that as a listener is so important. Instead of saying, it doesn't seem relevant to this, or I don't see how that's going to work. Whereas if you can say, that's interesting. I mean, that makes me think of this. Then you've got a conversation. And trying to build that habit and that habit of, of being generous to the starting point of someone else um, into a company, into an organization is a good priority. Yeah. So certainly being generous. And one of the things I immediately think about is, you know, Polaroid could have certainly cornered the market on digital photography. And instead they said, nah, who wants digital photos? Never mind. You can go somewhere else. Yeah. And what was so interesting about that too is they were, they were all chemists and the whole of the photography industry was dominated by chemists because it was about, uh, you know, processing film. That was the real industry. Selling the cameras was just the way to get people hooked. But it was interesting because they thought in terms of chemistry, so they couldn't think, well, could this industry be dominated by digital? It was, it was, and that's where we say it's important to be able to get outside the mental model that you see the world through. Exactly. And so, and so are, are there other things that nonprofits could do to, to really make space for creativity and give people the opportunity to run with creative ideas? I think as far as possible, being able to give people resources at an early stage is really helpful, even if it's almost token. You know, so one of the companies we interviewed was uh, called Recruit. They're a large conglomerate in Japan. And what's fascinating for a large conglomerate is that they're actually able to generate excellent new ideas within their own business, often which have turned into their own mini organizations owned by the business and generate a lot of value. Um, but what the way they do that is if you have an idea, you can very easily advertise it to other people at the company, very easily collect a new team from just random parts of the company who are interested just out of passion, and then pretty easily get through the first hurdle to getting $1,000, which is small in that context. And they don't do a whole lot of assessment. They say, I think their criteria is, is someone passionate about it? They might have a couple of others, but lo a low bar. And then you have multiple you know, other bars as the idea gets proven. But the more you can give people the resources, even just time, you know, if you can say, if you come to me with an interesting idea, I'll look into giving you an afternoon off a week to work on it. That could be a good starting point. I love that. And I'll share with you for the vast majority of nonprofits to say, hey, you know, any, any team member that comes with a, with a really good idea, you know, we can, we can offer $1,000, you know, for you to start to pursue it and end some time every week. I think the vast majority of nonprofits could do that. Yeah, well, that's good to hear. Yeah. 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 So, one of the other things I was really curious about throughout your book, and well, there, there are lots of awesome things throughout your book, including some very, very cool drawings. I would not even call them cartoons, just some very cool drawings. But often beside those drawings, there were some. The drawings are actually done by my dad. No way. Really? <laughs> yeah. yeah. He actually thought of all the cartoons as well. Is your dad a professional cartoonist? No, he's actually an architect. He just likes to do cartooning and somehow it ended up he was just extremely good at making 
funny cartoons commenting on our work and uh it just evolved from there so he is extremely good wow i was <laughs> yeah. i was not expecting you wow okay but often beside those cartoons that your dad drew i now know um are are really some incredible generative questions and so i'm curious how you how you and your co-author developed those questions yeah mark and i drew in all sorts of places for those questions I think usually we we thought of our own experience or observed experience of others. So that question earlier, I had watched good philosophers draw parallels. A, a lot of good writing, I think, is about being able to just accurately describe what goes on and to remember an experience and what was the first thought that you had at the beginning of that. So we did a lot of talking in various you know living rooms and, and cafes and offices throughout the course of this work, just analyzing experiences like when where did that idea begin? What was the first thought? Tracing it back. And then that turns into a question. And then there's the task of formulating the question in a pithy way, which I think Martin is particularly good at. He's got a good advertiser's mind for those formulations. So that was our process. Wow. Again, there were just some incredible questions. One of my favorite generative questions I've already I've already said, which is what parallels can you draw? But two more of my favorite questions, uh, which went back to back, was what if we doubled our confidence? And what if we doubled our humility? Like when I actually, and again, as I said, I often, I oftentimes for me, plane time is my think time. And so I actually, I remember, you know, a plane was like going down the runway, getting ready to take off. And that, and I read that and I'm like, okay, it's now time for me to close my book and look at the clouds and just think about those two questions. Well, that's that's a win, you know. If we can achieve that in in someone like you, that's great. You know? but, but 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 I mean, like they were really powerful questions. And I'll share with you, I've actually I've actually used some of your generative questions with clients when we're in a meeting and we find ourselves stuck. And I'm like, okay, you know, and and, and so I'll be, you know, so for example, I'll throw out, well, you know, what if we were to double our confidence or or double our humility? Or I'll throw out, okay, what parallels can we draw with anything else in the world or throughout history? And it kind of gets people thinking differently. And even if even if the answer to those questions don't help them move forward, the creativity that comes out of that does. Yeah. Actually, the story behind that particular set of questions is interesting and illustrative of imagination too, perhaps, because we're speaking with a biologist that we talk to a lot, Simon Levin, who's a pretty nationally famous biologist in that field at Princeton. And we were just talking about the role of ego in, in new ideas. And we asked, we really want to get to the bottom of it because it seems as though ego is part of it, confidence, but also not too much. Or So we want to kind of talk about that. And we talked and talked and we, we figured, well, actually, you need humility and confidence in some way. And what, is, what does that mean? Because they're kind of opposite. And we were saying, well, it's sort of like you sometimes need to be humble. You sometimes need to be confident. It's actually just different times, perhaps. And then out of that, that's when we boiled it down to, well, what if we doubled one and doubled the other? So, and then that question, you know, triggered your thinking and could be used in other places. So it's a good example of just sometimes the path of something new is so random. <laughs> Absolutely. And so that, that was illustrative of that. So... Jack, I'm so curious. You you've written this book, and you know you wrote it. I think with a colleague at Boston Consulting Group, and then you rolled out of BCG so that you could start uh, Archive Health, where you're the CEO and founder. So, um, part of why I find this so interesting is you're in a unique position where you can kind of be like a philosophy monarch, because. You know, you know, because like, okay, you've written this book on imagination and creativity and ways in which you can harness it for good and also to build your organization. And now you find yourself actually building and growing an organization. 
Mm, yeah, absolutely. It's been so interesting. And I think, yeah, I might have written some things differently about the book, having actually tried to run something seriously, but not a lot. Uh, it's it's more a fascinating experience of trying to apply this. And I'd say my overall uh, report is that it's very difficult. It's extremely difficult to apply this. And a lot of it is emotional. I think I would have zoomed in on that in the, in the book if I was to do it again, where, you know, I my whole day is filled with a sort of dumpster load of tasks and it's very easy to just keep doing them and they never end. And you get in this little pattern of doing that continuously. And it, it's so hard to just disengage and say, I'm going to go for a walk and to see the value of going for a walk, even though I wrote the book on it, you know, where going for a walk is, is a time to reflect or looking out the window in the airplane. It's very easy to intellectually say I can see the value, but very hard emotionally to be able to detach from that and to fit that into a day that's otherwise full of completely unpredictable things, many of which are urgent. Um, so that, that was interesting for me. This gave me some humility about how hard it is. First of all, I love this phrase, dumpster load of tasks. As as someone who's been an executive director and also has done interim EDs, that's 100% what it is. It's like every day there's just a dumpster load of tasks. Second, I know that you said you might maybe write things somewhat differently now that you've had the opportunity to be a philosopher monarch who has that dumpster load of tasks pulling up to your desk every single day. And so you had mentioned maybe recognize the, the emotional side of it is, is one of the things you might write about differently. Is there anything else? Mm, um, yeah, I think I have got really realistic about the difficulty of encouraging imagination from employees, partly because they're so busy. That's one thing. But also that a big focus in building a company is getting those structures in place. And it's not easy, you know, <laughs> and you need them. Uh, you can't overdo it, of course, but you need them, especially in a healthcare company, that you've got to be absolutely compliant. And a lot of the focus is actually on being strict and keeping things in line. And we are now after one year starting to think about ways to encourage our staff. We have about 15 people all up to, to suggest ideas and think of them. But I think I would have given some even more appreciation in the book for the, the structural side of things, the efficiency side, which is its own challenge. And I'll show you, I think especially for uh, small and medium-sized nonprofits, that's also true for them. So much of it is about creating the structure so that they can, you know, frankly, survive and then thrive. I do think that they experience that balance of, okay, how do we, how do we embrace creativity while still having enough structure to, to thrive? Definitely. One other small thing I would add is getting really practical about putting it on your calendar to make time to talk about a new idea or think about new ideas. You know, I, I work by bouncing ideas off others. So taking time to meet about that. And, you know, it doesn't work, I think, when you just put it on your calendar yourself because the day takes over. But we figured if you have other people in the company also making you do it, which I guess is called a meeting. <laughs> but, you know, if the two of you have, have to do it together, then you can have a meeting about or at least check in to say, okay, now is imagination time for the next hour, and we, we're going to commit to that. So those kind of things seem very tactical, but it actually makes a big difference for how to do it. Jack, it's interesting you say that. While I was reading your book, I actually had this uh, creative idea. And, you know, because you have such great generative questions in your book, and I was like, oh, my gosh, my consulting colleague, Lexi, we, we, do, we do a weekly check-in. We schedule 90 minutes for it. It's like we should 100% like do a generative question um, at the start of every meeting, and I'm like, and maybe one week I can I can bring a question, and the next week she can, and we'll just keep swapping off like this. And so I'll share with you, Jack. When we first started doing this, our initial thought was, okay, we'll spend about 15 minutes. 
it wasn't possible. Like 45 minutes in, we still weren't done. And we're like, we got to get to all the other, all the other agenda <laughs> items. But we're having, we're having so much fun talking about the creative question. And it's really, it's really generating some amazing um, thought and possibilities. That's great. Oh, that's wonderful to hear. Yeah, sometimes it just takes unlocking it and you get in the groove. But I've just found it interesting that you said, you know, scheduling it, because that's kind of, I guess, what we ended up doing was saying, okay, you know, let's schedule generative question as part of our regular weekly meeting. And, you know, but it's interesting because it's kind of taken over our regular weekly Definitely, meeting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's funny, yeah. And often one of us has a hard stop at 90 minutes. And so, and so then we're like, okay, we now have 45 minutes to run through everything else we were going to try to discuss. So we're way more efficient on everything else. Yeah, so well, that's good. Well, double benefit. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, that reminds me of something that I would even emphasize in the book, which is the value of really building it into the processes. And we, we give in the book a list of the kinds of criteria you could use in hiring and promotion, which I think is so valuable. Like I know at BCG, they have quite well-developed criteria for assessment and feedback. And people really orient their lives around performing to those criteria because it's linked to your bonus and everything and promotion. So building imagination in there into the real power structures of the company is, is really a good way to go, I think. And before we move to the off the map question, can you share just one or two things that nonprofits should be looking for if they want to hire for that creativity? Yeah, I would say, um, firstly, look past the veneer to people who look a bit boring might be imaginative. That's more of a prelude. The first one would be look at the history people who've done imaginative things, ask about how they imagined previous projects and were they imaginative in them. That's a great marker. And actually, we got that from Pfizer. The way he tells people who'd be good at inventing, thinking about new drugs is who've done it before. It's quite hard to assess. But another one would be giving them a test, just a, a problem and say, you know, tell me three different ways of looking at this problem or think of an analogy that would be relevant to this problem that's good ways to test for the capability. Okay. Wow. That almost sounds like some B-School case study work there, but all right, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yes, with an imaginative spin, I hope. Exactly. Yeah, no, yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. It, it is. But I'm like, wow, yeah, that's kind of B-School case study. That's kind of awesome. Um, well, Jack, I am, I'm so grateful that you're joining us today, but and, and I'm loving our conversation so far, but I've got to move to the off-the-map question because I also want to be respectful of your time. I know you signed on at like, five o'clock your time. And now, now we're going on six o'clock your time. So um, I understand that you have a favorite poem that is not really a single poem. I think it's like four poems that was written over decades. Mm. Yeah, it's a wonderful set of poems called Four Quartets by T.S. Eliot. And it is really just a complete treasure trove. It's, it's fantastic. It's Eliot was trying to combine philosophy and poetry, and he mixes the abstract and the concrete in such a beautiful way and writes about the mysteries of the universe. It's, it's something you can mine forever, I think, and I, I love it. I tried to memorize all of it at some point. Um, Did you really? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Bits of it are falling off, but I, it does feel very familiar to me. I've got a, my original copy of it here. Um, should I read a bit? Oh, I love that, yeah. Home is where one starts from. As we grow older, the world becomes stranger, the pattern more complicated of dead and living. Not the intense moment isolated with no before and after, but a lifetime 
burning in every moment, and not the lifetime of one man only, but of old stones that cannot be deciphered. I love that. He's talking about how starting off as a child, everything's so immediate and 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 just present. But as you grow older, you realize that the things you carry with you that, that you've absorbed from the culture and from your history have this depth to them. And you're in a way carrying these old mysterious stones in, in your life that cannot be deciphered, this stretch back, you know, into previous eras and even evolution. And, and you realize the depth of the life that, that you're living more than, than you did at the beginning. Um, I just love that idea. And for me, it connects with what I'd like to do with my company, which is offering therapy. And uh, it's a whole other topic, but I'm very passionate about good therapy. And I think part of it helps you realize all the layers that make up who you are, which is a great, great thing to inquire about and to explore. Hmm. The section of the passage that you read really spoke to me. Um, as someone who has recently entered his 50s, with both parents gone, I absolutely see that, where it's like, yeah, it's not always like, okay, before and after, living and dead, everything's just kind of intertwined and intermingled and in kind of some interesting and bizarre ways. Yeah, and the, the, the spirit of, of the dead comes alive when we bring it alive in us, and, and yes. it's, it's, all, it's all intermingled. And, yes, yeah. oh yeah. Yeah, mm. and, and I will say, like, and my, my father has been gone for, gosh, over two decades, and I'm surprised at how often, like, he will just appear in dreams, like, as alive as he ever was, same voice, same look, same everything. And it's always kind of amazing to him, like, wow, you know, how, how like, even now, conscious self, if I try to picture him, I actually have a little bit of a difficult time picturing it, but in my dreams, full color, full on. Wow, yeah. Yeah, very interesting. it's amazing. Yeah. yeah. I actually lost my mother in 2020 and really, oh. you know, made me, um, really changed my mental models in some ways, you know, my perspective on the world really, yeah. really does. Yeah, yeah. I, can, I completely understand that. Mm. Oh, well, Jack, thank you so much for joining us. I'm, I'm grateful that you have, and I always want listeners to be able to find out more. So first of all, go to Amazon and order Jack's book, The Imagination Machine. This is such a great book. I'll also share with you, um, it's a short book. It's a fun book to read, and it's an unusual size, which I, Jack, I actually meant to ask you, is that intentional, the, the unusual size of your yeah, book? Yeah, we wanted it to feel like a fun handbook. You hit that well, because like, it does not feel like most business books that you read. Like You pick it up, and you're like, this is, good. This is the size of a children's book. <laughs> yeah, we wanted to to echo that. Yeah, yeah, and, and 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 let me be clear. I don't mean that as a slam. I actually mean that as a good thing. Like like it it just it puts you in a different space when you pick up a book that looks and feels like that shape of that book. I like the idea of taking fun formats and filling them with you know really serious or well developed content. It's kind of that combination, you know. Yeah. So so listeners, make sure that you check out the book. Um, you can get it at Amazon, The Imagination Machine. Also, something else that I want you to do is check out Jack's website, archivehealth.com, and you can find out more about the business that he is building using the principles that he talks about in the imagination machine. Jack, thank you again for coming on the podcast. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. All right, listeners, if you want to know more, you can always go to our show notes at successfulnonprofits.com. We will undoubtedly link to the Imagination Machine on Amazon. We will also link to Archive Health, although if you can remember Archive Health, you can remember the URL, archivehealth.com. And do not forget, please, that we always value when you rate, review, and share 
this podcast. And finally, if you found this episode useful, if you found it informative, there are two more that I want you to download and consider listening to. The first is Challenge the Fundraising Status Quo with Sherry Quam Taylor. Sherry talks about really creative ways that your organization can be engaging in fundraising that, you know, frankly, is a very different mental model from the way most organizations are doing it. And second, consider downloading Solving Problems with Unlikely Partners with Leah Garces, also phenomenally good outside-of-the-box thinker who pretty much went to her organizational enemies and said, hey, how can we work together and found good ways to work together. That, listeners, is our show for this week. I hope that you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. And I never want to say this, but the lawyers make me. I'm not an accountant nor an attorney. I say this every week. Everyone should know this by now. And guess what that means? That means that this show is for informational purposes only. It should not be used for tax, legal, and accounting advice. So here's the deal. If you find yourself in need of tax, legal, or accounting advice, do not, under any circumstances, rely on podcasts for that. Trust me, that's going to be a mistake. You're not going to like the outcome of the advice that you get, most likely. Instead, find a licensed, qualified professional in your area and consult with them. If you're not sure what type of professional you should be talking to, or if you have a sense of who you should be talking to but don't have a name, reach out to me. I'm happy to help you figure out what type of professional, and if I know someone in your region, I'm happy to make a referral.